and welcome. This is episode two of A Cargo of Bricks. Now, last week we spoke to Ian Parsley about the health aspect of our fight back against COVID-19. This week I'm speaking to Graham Brownlow, who is a senior lecturer in economics at Queen's Management School in Belfast. And we spoke to Graham, uh, first of all, about the economic consequences of that fight back. And secondly, what is it he thinks we need to do to redress some of the economic imbalances that will certainly spring from those actions? So look, just to get into this straight away, can you just set some context for economic context for Northern Ireland? just before COVID-19 hits? Okay, so in economics, there's a general rule of thumb that if a problem lasts a long time, it's going to take a long time to solve. And I'm afraid to say for Northern Ireland pre-COVID, that was its situation. A lot of the Northern Irish predicaments that we witness in Northern Ireland are very, very long-standing. The problems before COVID of low productivity, economic inactivity, regionals and spatial imbalance within Northern Ireland. These are all enduring problems that long predate COVID. They go back decades. In fact, you might argue that should go back before the existence of Northern Ireland. And of course, one of the most key vulnerabilities as we've seen it uh, unfold it, it, under the threat of the, um, the, the virus is that a lot of our employment base is both low-waged and low-skilled. Um, so there's that, that's a real problem for the people who find themselves in that situation, surely? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the essential point in economics is that productivity is the driver of wages. And of course, skills are the drivers of productivity. So we have like a triangle that mutually reinforces itself of low wages begetting low productivity, creating low wages. that feeds back into weak incentive to retrain, et cetera, et cetera. So we have a vicious circle in the Northern Ireland economy. This is a very long sustained problem. We could, we could talk about reports going back decades. Again, we've tried again and again to rectify this situation. Uh, we can talk later on about the failures of implementation in this regard, but there's no doubt that this is a long, enduring problem. And of course, even since the onset of the Vols government in 2007, Really, since the 2000, first of all, the 2008 uh, global collapse in finance, which then put uh, fiscal pressures on government spending. But really, since 2010, one of the one of the uh, targets of the George Osborne government in uh, or George Osborne Treasury, if you like, has been the the, the ratcheting down of public spending and particular and creating particular vulnerabilities in in, in health. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Northern Ireland is an economy that's disproportionately reliant on public spending relative to the rest of the UK. And within that budget, of course, health is the most important chunk. Uh, and that's tied in with lots of social problems because healthcare demands are not independent of social problems. And Northern Ireland has plenty of those social problems. So let's move on to the actual practical effects and the difficulties that the onset of the, the virus has had. Which particular economic sector do you think has been hit the hardest? Well, I think perhaps uh, retail is perhaps the fault line for Northern Ireland above all, largely because it's the biggest single private sector employer. I said, depending on how you divide up the sectors. Uh, that's the first point. And secondly, of course, because it's an employment intensive sector with all sorts of social repercussions and spatial repercussions, it, it's like a domino. Once you take out one retailer within a location, people are less likely to go to that location. 
So the likelihood of the second retailer closing is increased. So this is a very, very uh, problem systemic issue. And what do you think? What do you think Stormont or any any government can do um, to try and redress that kind of vulnerability going forward? I think we have to think much more seriously about uh, how we organise the the planning system and tax system as it applies to retail. Uh, it's very clear that the, the days of the high street being the weekly shop, I think they're probably gone for a lot of intents and purposes. If you're going to be a retailer uh, and you're going to thrive in a world of Amazon, etc., you have to offer something that Amazon doesn't offer in a face-to-face sense. You know, and that could be something as basic as a, a butcher who offers, uh, you know, unique products that you don't get in the supermarket, or it could be uh, a bookshop that focuses on narrow range of books that you wouldn't necessarily get on Amazon. I mean, I think you have to have a niche, a unique selling point. Um, and landlords have to do their bit. They have to realize the price that they can charge for these uh, properties, maybe as what they were hoping for X years ago. The economy has changed. The prices have changed. They have to adjust. I mean, it's interesting you pick up on the the Amazon thing because clearly Amazon is about as far remote removed from a sense of community as it's possible to get. Uh, And there is a real sense, I think, with local retail, the high street retail, that they are embedded in community. The community actually means something because the workers come from that community. And people who repeat shop um, in the one... Uh, in the one shop or the one set of shops become known over a period of time and as COVID has hit mm. they've become a kind of an unofficial part of the support mechanism for mm. in a way that Amazon certainly isn't interested no. in any of us as no. social creatures are simply no. interested in us as, as a transactional uh, prospect yeah. and even the big supermarkets you go to Sprucefield or you go to some of the you know not McGonney or any of those other big retail things during COVID-19, these are potential areas, not only of getting what you want, but you know, the, cross, the possibility of cross-contamination in these bigger places is much higher than it is for the more low-volume shops. Yeah. So th- 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 I wonder if there's something around that that we need to be thinking about in terms of not just putting it all on the retailers, but beginning to tip some policy advantage towards uh, local retail. Well, yeah, I mean, I think in the case of these low, high-value retailers, a lot of people with higher income will be willing to pay a, a premium for the convenience uh, and choice uh, of that local service. Um, obviously, the whole point about supermarkets, the original economic advantage they offered was the scale economies, so they could charge a lower price for the mass consumer. So I think for maybe the average family doing the average weekly shop, I don't expect to see supermarkets be outperformed by little retailers of that nature. But I think in some niches, you will see that. Big big goods would be a good example. Um, and uh, butchers would be another example. You can see fishmongers, etc. I think there will be niches uh, and potential uh, opportunities that do exist. But part of that problem of turning those little business ideas into actual businesses is the capital requirements and covering your rents. Again, that requires an issue, I think, about vacant properties. Um, because in usually in economics, we assume if there's excess supply of something, prices fall. 
we see in the high street excess supply of of uh, commercial properties and they, they don't necessarily fill immediately so there's there's something stopping the market clearly um uh, and what that is uh is probably access to capital uh and i'm afraid attitudes of landlords towards the rents that they're going to get away with sure well slightly on the more upside one of the things that covid has done has revolutionized the amount of money available to the health service but also to, uh, to the public service more generally. Um, the clear opportunities there for, um, for, for public policy getting on a, on, a, on a front foot for once. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, the growth of public spending in Northern Ireland uh, acts as a, a floor to the economy that it, it, for all the faults that we can talk about later on that arises from Northern Ireland's high reliance of public spending, one undoubted benefit is it does stabilise the level of employment. It does stabilise uh, the level of consumption in, in the economy. That local businesses, going back to the earlier point, can plan on the fact that there are large numbers of local civil servants, healthcare workers, etc., in a community that are consumers in your coffee shop, etc. So there, there, there are repercussions beyond the direct um, implications of healthcare. Sure. Although this is where I think your initial point about the, the sort of, in a way, COVID-19, the economic effects are unequal. Because if you are in this predominantly um, low-wage uh, and low-skill economy, you know, that's a problem. And, you know, I, I think you've got some uh, interesting kind of insights is about just how unequal. Yeah. That spread is within Northern Ireland itself. Yeah. So if you think about the what economists call segmentation, or what in plain English means inequities and divisions uh, in a usual economic sense, the fact is that there are winners and losers of this phenomena of COVID. Um, the, winner, the winners have actually been people like you and me, people who have comfortable professional jobs that they can do a job by Zoom. They don't have to commute. In, in a dangerous commuting by public transport into uh, a, a workplace that may be dangerous itself in some shape or form. Those are people in higher incomes have that luxury. They're the winners from this uh, phenomenon insofar as there are winners. The people who are the unambiguous un- losers are people who work at low wage jobs in the service sector that are often face to face, a taxi driver, the person working on the, uh, the till at the local supermarket, those people are putting themselves at far greater risk. I believe, and I'm right in saying that in the UK, bus drivers in London are the highest occupational risk group in terms of mortality currently. Um, that, that tells the, the story. Um, so I think we have to think about the inequities of skills, the inequities of educational opportunities, the inequities of, of general life in the UK. Um, I, I think that's part of what, what COVID should tell us as economists and indeed as people. Can you give us some indication about how that maps geographically onto Northern Ireland, for instance? Well, Northern Ireland's, of course, Northern Ireland overall has a, a peculiar picture because the aggregate picture is Northern Ireland's income per head productivity is about 20% below the UK average. But if you plot it by city, Belfast in some measures, economic activity, it doesn't perform so well. But if you take what's called GVA, gross value added, 
and you plot by council area. There are 178 council areas in the UK. Belfast actually comes 10th in the UK. Okay, so it does incredibly well. Yeah, it does incredibly well. And we can talk about the reasons for that. Uh, but what's quite interesting is when you look at the rest of Northern Ireland, in particular, uh, there is the one-for-one mapping, but what's called the Causeway Glen, essentially running from Strabane through to sort of, say, Limavady, say, Derry, Londonderry included in that. It's actually at, in the bottom 10 in the UK. So you have, by cheek by jowl, Belfast as this outlier within Northern Ireland, way above the UK average. From, uh, at the same time, you have uh, other parts of Northern Ireland that are way below the UK average. Why is that? It's because of the, uh, the way what economists call the multiplier or the Moretti multiplier, if you want to be technical, operates. The fact is the reserve of high skill, high value added public and private sector jobs are disproportionately located in Belfast. Your major management consultancies that are located in Belfast that are selling their services to Silicon Valley, you know, the major public sector, high value lawyers, that are selling their services at a very high price, as anyone has to deal with a lawyer ever can tell you. All of these sorts of high value added services are located in Greater Belfast disproportionately. So, you know, from an economic point of view, if you're being dispassionate, you have to say empirically, it's Belfast that looks like the outlier and not other parts of Northern Ireland. That's interesting. That's almost like the general situation you get in the UK where uh, the hotspot, the economic hotspot, is around London and the southeast. And when you, the further out you get, either down towards Cornwall or up to uh, the northeast and northwest, that's where you've had the greater problems. Yeah, I mean, I mean it, that... it, and this is where the northern powerhouse, in a way, is one of the few legacy issues, uh, or legacy projects, I think, from the Cameron era that actually is a strategic targeting of those areas. Steve Bradley's yeah. written for us recently talking about why the city deal might be a really important deal for Derry to kind of get through some of this post-COVID and post-Brexit uh, turbulence. Yeah, I mean, the, the Belfast uh, and the rest of Northern Ireland is not a unique problem by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, if you look at Edinburgh, it's ninth in the table, and that's purely because of the whole system of government and the professions in Edinburgh that predates devolution. Um yeah. Uh, so I think the top five places are all taken by parts of Greater London, but after that it's metropolitan places in the northwest of England, Edinburgh, such like Belfast. The real losers sure. are places like the Doncasters, the Rotherhams in South Yorkshire, um, and within Northern Ireland, west of the Ban. But these are all very long-standing phenomena. Spatial inequities in the UK economy are deeply ingrained in British and Irish economic history. Uh, yeah. As, as a skein of Donegal, I can tell you people in Donegal aren't that, weren't that enamoured with the Celtic Tiger. Um, I think some of that, we, we see some of that real disaffection, I think, in, in February's election, the election yeah. to oh, yes. NM, uh, TDs. Uh, so, um, look, as we're kind of moving towards the end of this, let's talk a little bit about regeneration and kind of next steps. So, you know, what would you sort of prioritise in terms of I mean, what do you see as the opportunities, first of all, rather than specifics? Um, what, what do we need to do to kind of not just recover from COVID-19 economic shocks, but to actually begin to address some of those long-term issues you talked about at the beginning? Okay, so I think uh, if I was to 
come up with a wish list of three policy areas. There'd be in three categories. One would be rebalancing a lot of the public spend education towards preschool, because I think there's social as well as economic benefits that we will get from directing uh, education spending in that direction. Well, just Second, explain those, just before you go on to the next one, just explain what do you think those okay. benefits are and why they're needed. Okay, so there's a long-standing empirical literature associated with Jim Heckman, who won the Nobel Prize for this, that shows that uh, if you do the, the calculations of social problems like healthcare problems, educational problems, crime, etc., you notice that it, the kids that, that grew up to, to cause those problems for society, essentially, they can be solved, prevented, if preschool interventions occur. In other words, you know, getting a child to sit in a lap and reading them a story and getting in the habit of reading is not only great for the child innately, but it actually shapes the rest of their life. So if you want to be a very non-economist about it, you know, a childhood lasts a lifetime. So, you know, if we can get kids' habits before they've even got to school, right, we can solve an awful lot of social problems because of aspirations. That's number one. So you start at the base. Very good place to start. Number two... Number two would be to inject some responsibility and what economists call hard budgets into public finance in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has a terrible record of soft budgets. In other words, somebody else picks up the tab and that leads to bad decision-making. Good decision-making is when somebody has to pick up the tab and pay for it themselves. Go on, give us an example. Well, uh, people in Northern Ireland are not paying water charges, for instance. Uh, it doesn't strike me if you're really committed to social equity, why that in particular is a sensible way to go about doing things. Unpack Uh, that that for us. Well, I mean, politically it's very popular because, of course, politically it's popular to say people don't pay directly for things. But, of course, that's an illusion because somebody somewhere pays for that thing. Now, in Northern Ireland, people pay for it through the fact that the fiscal transfer is huge for Northern Ireland. The taxpayer generally is paying for, in the UK, is paying for that transfer. Somebody somewhere pays for it. Uh, Now, how do we go about targeting social need? Well, targeting social need isn't about giving people universal services necessarily. It's about identifying actual need and addressing that need. That's why I said earlier on what I said about preschool education. You know, if you really want to have cost-effective ways of treating social problems, you identify what the social problems are and find the most cost-effective way of dealing with social problems. For Northern Ireland, setting the price of uh, water charges at zero or not having uh, road pricing, I could go through the list of all the things that Northern Ireland will not do politically. Yes, there are benefits to people. They're not in their budget, seeing that in their budget of weekly expenditure, but that's something of illusion because they are paying it in another form or worse still, somebody else is paying for it somewhere else. I think yeah. that uh, a lot of responsibility could be injected into the system if that culture was broken. And of course, then what you're doing is you're uh, you're directing your resor- resources more clearly to where you see the greater social need. Um, yeah, yeah. And you, uh, what's number three, quickly, and then we'll have some conclude because I think I, I want some concluding remarks from you on this but you've got a third a third idea you think we should take seriously okay so again i'm afraid it's not very original it's not very glamorous but if we really want to do things in terms of fdi and reshoring and the opportunities that are going to emerge 
we need better infrastructure. And that, I mean that generally throughout Northern Ireland, not just Greater Belfast, but throughout Northern Ireland. And of course, the benefit of infrastructure is twofold in the sense, the first sense that this is actually popular in Whitehall. So it won't be a matter of knocking on doors and the doors staying locked. Um, so that's practical. It's just purely pragmatic alignment mm -hmm. of uh, mm -hmm. mood at the moment. Um, and of course, it has a double economic benefit of providing jobs in the short term and making Northern Ireland more competitive in the longer term. But there is an issue, and it isn't, as we've said before, these big, or you've said before, the biggest problems Northern Ireland faces are cultural and very long term. And we have a big issue with implementation. Um, now, when we were talking beforehand, you mentioned a report from 1957. Tell us a little bit about that report and why it was important and what it tells us about Northern Ireland's appetite for getting its uh, okay. sleeves rolled up and actually doing some of the work people are talking about. Okay, so Isles and Cuthbert, uh, KS Isles and Norman Cuthbert's uh, 1957 report, Economic Survey of Northern Ireland, is important. It was commissioned in 1948 and uh, didn't finally see the light until 1957. It actually was completed by 1955, but sat on the shelf for two years. It was an incredibly detailed empirical survey of the Northern Ireland economy, much more detailed than anything before or since. But it angered the political masters and it sat on the shelf and it was never really dealt with properly because the message it said about anti-competition in the Northern Ireland economy and poor efficiency didn't chime with what the story politicians wanted to tell about geography, which is a bit of a fairy tale. <laughs> So I think that's that's about as much time as we've got to spend on this, Graham. It, it, it's a kind of a slight opening, if you like, on Northern Ireland's kind of uh, issues that, that I think mm -hmm. the one that I take away mostly is this, look, how COVID okay. is stressing uh, two, okay. two vulnerable demographics. One, the young, the people who are least vulnerable to the disease and making the biggest economic sacrifice for the benefit of, of people, you know, pensioners, uh, the professionals, people who are already doing quite well, uh, relatively speaking, out of society. And of course, that, that whole issue of vulnerability around local retail. Yeah. Um, listen, it's been great talking, Graham. Thanks very much for your time. Hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you. I have, thank you. Cargo of Bricks is brought to you by Slugger O'Toole. Northern Ireland's leading source for independent news, insight and analysis. Support us by hitting the donor box button at sluggerotool.com.